It is our prayer that every time we gather in this place and worship that our eyes are turned upon the Savior. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. So we return to uh, the text in 2 Peter that uh, we will continue through even as we start the new year, as soon the holidays will be upon us, and deal with the destructive heresies that uh, Peter points out that are inevitable and coming, in fact, even here, not just in Peter's age, but ours as well. I want to remind you just a couple of things before we get into the text this morning. Uh, We do have, in two weeks, our celebration banquet. For those of you who are new to us, that celebration banquet is always celebrated the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and it's in honor to this same Christ for all of the good and perfect things that come from above. It's a time for us to look and be grateful for what God has done here at First Baptist Church in Johnson City and how God is using the First Baptist Church in Johnson City for His glory. Really, the only time we talk about finances at this time of the year and giving is when we point to this celebration offering as a way for God's people to give above and beyond regular tithes and offerings to give glory to God and to celebrate the things that He's done both here and through First Baptist Church in Johnson City. Uh, Next week, we'll articulate in particular where the offering will go to and some of the things that it will be used for in glorifying our Savior. But I also want you to know that it's a day of celebration, and right after our morning worship service around 11 o'clock, we will sit down for a celebratory meal in the gymnasium just across from our worship center, and all of you are invited, but we need to know what your plans are. So at all of the welcome centers and even in some of the ABF classes today, there are sign-ups for that celebration banquet. If you would do me a favor, us a favor, and uh, sign up if you're going to be attending that so that we can make appropriate plans for the celebration of Thanksgiving and the goodness of God here at First Baptist Church in Johnson City. The whole morning worship service will be focused upon celebrating the goodness of God and being thankful for what He's done and what He is doing here at First Baptist, and we would encourage all of you to participate in this. You cannot go out to eat after church and get a better meal that you could get here at First Baptist Church in Johnson City on Celebration Sunday. So we encourage you to stick around, but we do need you to sign up. I'd also encourage, if you're a parent or a grandparent, and don't have a Sunday school class to attend uh, based on Pastor Chris's absence this morning, would like to join your children or grandchildren upstairs in the youth wing, you're always welcome. If you're wondering what's going on up there, well, come and find out for yourself. It's not much different than a Sunday morning down here, but we would welcome you to come as we uh, look at Thanksgiving over the next couple of weeks in the refinery upstairs in the teen ministry. And we'd also want to especially thank uh, Bill and Norma Webb, who hosted the teenagers this past weekend for a hayride and bonfire and some refreshments. We appreciate their hospitality, and uh, I think that the teens are probably thought out about now from that, from that weekend activity. But special thanks to uh, Bill and Norma Webb uh, for uh, hosting us and uh, being so gracious in the time that we spent with them. Again, now it will turn our attention to Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, but if you would uh, 
be patient with me. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 16, and then go through chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. When we read a text like this, as Peter transitions from the glory of the revealed Word of God to the situation on the ground, it is so reminiscent of many of the things taking place in our culture today. Destructive heresies, new things being taught in opposition to orthodox or traditional understandings of things. If you've been paying attention, in our culture today there is this attempt to simply uh, do away with everything that is old and to remake and recast our culture in the image of the intellectual elites of the culture and even most recently in uh, the political sphere, both President Biden and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had made it very clear that the common man, the people of America, just don't really understand the complexities of what's taking place today. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in fact, talking about the old people who talk about wokeness and critical race theory. What they're doing is saying out loud what is being said behind closed doors. They don't like the culture. They don't like its morality. They don't like the direction of Western civilization. And they believe that they are the smartest people in the room, those who are the wisest in the room, and they're going to project a new and a different kind of way. Even though repudiated at the polls recently, they have doubled down on their efforts to to kind of remake a culture and society. For the last couple of weeks and even beyond that, I've been reacquainting myself with some of the writings of Thomas Sowell, who was a fellow at uh, the Hoover Institute, who was a prolific writer on economics and history and social justice and ethnicity, and really the history of ideas. He passed away last year but his writings and his insight into what is taking place in the culture 
are, are deeply critical writings as we sort through much of what's happening in the context of ideas in our culture today. It seems like in society today, the common man is dismissed in favor of the intellects or the experts who are the smartest people in the room. And as Thomas Sowell writes about this, he says there has probably never been an era in history when intellectuals have played a larger role in society than in the era in which we live today. It used to be that the United States was governed by the people who would place representatives in office who would represent the people. But today, the ideology being driven, this change in Western civilization, is done by the elites and the intellectuals. But he points out a very important issue in the context of, of the culture and society, and he says that intellect or mere intelligence is simply not enough to meet the issues of the day. In fact, he says intelligence minus judgment equals intellect. He says you can be the smartest person in the world and ignore the reality on the ground, to ignore the implications of the things that you are teaching and saying. He goes on to champion wisdom. And by the way, if you're struggling through this critical race theory, Thomas Sowell was a conservative black man who stepped into the institutions of Cornell and some of the, some of the highest institutions in our land and challenged some of the thinking today when it comes to uh, racial inequality and, and the perspectives of that. He champions wisdom by saying it is the rarest quality of all, the ability to combine the intellect, knowledge, experience, and judgment in a way to produce a coherent understanding. He says real intellect is expressed in wisdom when you see the whole picture and you use your experience and the realities of life to come to right and appropriate conclusions. He juxtaposes that against the intellectuals today who have this idea that they're championing, but they're never held accountable to the reality on the ground. It doesn't matter what's happening in your life. What matters is their ideology and getting that ideology out to the culture. You say, why does this have anything to do with your, what you're doing this morning, Pastor Jim? Well, hang on, and I'll, I'll connect the dots for you. George Orwell once said that some ideas are so foolish that only an intellectual could believe them. No ordinary man could be such a fool. At the end of the day, what's being said by many of these intellects just contradicts everything that I know to be true about my world, about my existence, about my life, and about what works. And yet we have turned over all the power to them. So here's the connection. The church of Jesus Christ is not far behind these intellectual elites in our culture and politics today. In fact, the church in many ways has jettisoned church tradition, and any kind of historic orthodox understanding of what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. Who would have thought that for the first 19 and a half centuries of the existence of the world as we know it, cultures of every ethnic blend across the world would understand that marriage was between one man and one woman. 
And yet in the last 50 years, this intellectual elite knows better, and now we have civil marriage and so many other perverted forms of what was sacred in the eyes of God. How did we get here? Even more so, how in the last 20 years has evangelicalism been drawn into this notion that we must accept and embrace homosexuality, transgenderism, and civil union as the right and the polite and the appropriate thing to do when, in fact, historic orthodox doctrine has always believed that homosexuality was an abomination before God. Here's how that happens. When the common man stops using their common sense to understand the Word of God, that doesn't change. It is not malleable. It is not subject to your whim or the whim of the culture. Thus saith the Lord. You follow me? The world has been embraced by the church, and we are starting to, to question some of those very orthodox traditional things and, and rethink them. And it is coming from institutes of higher learning and those self-appointed and culturally anointed experts, even in the church of Jesus Christ today. R.C. Sproul, writing in his commentary on First and Second Peter, says, we are living in perhaps the most anti-intellectual period in the history of Christendom. Not anti-academic or anti-scientific, but anti-mind. That's a really important statement. It's not like we're anti-science or anti-academics. We are anti-mind. Over the last 20 years, even in the church, we have gone from thinking clearly about life and culture, the origin of the universe, our role in that universe, uh, morality based on rational truth found in the Scriptures. And now truth is not found through the rational mind, it is found through emotion. So as long as you feel right about something or feel good about something, it must be true. And Sproul laments that in his commentary on Second Peter. He continues, I doubt that there has ever been a time in church history when professing Christians have been less concerned about doctrine than they are in our day. We hear almost daily that doctrine does not matter that Christianity is a relationship, not a creed. But here's the conflict. If you take propositional truth out of Christianity, it ceases to be Christianity. And we will show you through the text, through church history, how this happens. There's not simply indifference toward doctrine, he laments, but outright hostility, which is exceedingly dangerous and lamentable. Even in the church, many ways we've lost our way, and we've given over the truth of doctrine and the clarity of the Word of God, its perspicuity for sola experientia, my personal experience framing and shaping the parts of the Bible that are relevant to me, thereby leading to this notion that we can do all things through a verse taken out of context. So we draw a conclusion and we pick out a verse and say, see, this champions my conclusion, but it's void of any reason. Theodore Rozak said way back in 1973 that we are living in a Western civilization where religion is practiced as being spiritually irrelevant, yet privately engaging. But emotion can't sustain you in the worst times of life. There must be something bigger than your experience, 
There must be something that transcends what you and I think or feel about truth and reality. And of course, there is. Albert Moeller commenting in the same way most recently, back in 2019, says that Christianity in 20th century America has transformed into a non-cognitive commitment. And as a result, the binding authority of the Christian moral tradition has been lost. Many of our friends and neighbors continue to profess faith in God, but that profession is ultimately devoid of any moral authority or cognitive content. From the outside looking in, America did not appear to be secularizing at the same rate as the European continent. But in reality, however, professions of faith had little real theological or spiritual meaning. In other words, this notion that we believe something, and yet at the same time that belief is contrary to how we live, prevails even in the church and Western civilization. In fact, contrary to Mark chapter 12, we read, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The mind is critically important connected with the heart and soul and the very essence of life to find meaning in this world. Although there's little meaning in Western civilization in the political, social, psychological realm, more and more there's less and less meaning in the evangelical church that has shifted away from doctrinal truth and content to making people feel good about themselves. But you can feel good about yourself on the way to hell. And there is no hope in that way. Believe it or not, that's exactly what Peter addresses in his text this morning. Pray with me, please. Again, Father, we need you to help us sort through this, its cultural implications and its ecclesiastical implications, and we need you to help us sort through this in our minds. We know that emotions matter, but may those emotions be tethered to, to true truth and the notion of the mind in a way that brings glory to your name and reminds us of the things that matter most in a culture who has lost its way and in a church that is rapidly following that culture. God forbid here at First Baptist that we ever cave to this trend. May we always open the book. May we always see it as a binding authority. May we always understand the implication of our doctrinal beliefs as impacting how we live in this world and interact with the culture that has jettisoned any of those truths. And may we all and always be people of the book, no matter how hard that might become, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what Peter has to say about all of this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory. He is painting this picture as we looked at last time we were together of Peter and James and John being on that mountaintop and seeing the, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ where the glory of God was no longer veiled or hidden to them. And they could see this glorious, glorious radiant brightness of the God 
of all creation. They heard the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Peter said, in spite of being on that mountain in the midst of that emotional experience, so moved by what we saw and what we heard, writing to believers, he says, but there is something more sure than that mountaintop experience, and it is the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He gives us an argument against those who would teach us that, that the Word of God has been somehow put together by mere mortals. And he says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. The Bible doesn't come from men. He says this, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. And what's contained in the context of the Scripture is the Word of God, for what they wrote was written as they were carried along or superintended by the Holy Spirit of God. There are some who think I'm antiquated and outdated, one of those older folks that AOC talks about, because I believe the book is true. But what I believe is really irrelevant. God is saying to us through Peter, the book is true. And it didn't come from Peter. It came from my very heart and mind. And it has been spoken to you as I superintended over them. And what you have, you can rely on. You can trust in it. It is, Schaefer said, true truth. And heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Do you still believe that? I hope that you do. Because that's the only hope for the culture in which we live. And yet Peter, as he writes in this text, moves on in his second epistle from that first chapter to say in verse 1 of chapter 2, but, but false prophets also arose among the people. When he's talking about these false prophets that arose among the people, he is talking about the nation of Israel, those who received this Old Testament through the inspiration of Scripture and the writing of men. In this Israel, there were false prophets that rose among the people. And that when they rose from among the people, they, in essence, were the greatest threat to true truth and the greatest threat to the nation of Israel. Some of us believe that the greatest threat to our faith today is the political uh, reality of Western civilization. Let's be clear about this, just as Peter was. The greatest threat to Israel and the greatest threat to the church today are the false teachers who rise up not on the outside and challenge us, but rise up on the inside and buy into what's being said on the outside. Do you follow me? That's the gravest and greatest danger to the church, just as it was in Israel. And when these false teachers rise among the people to spin the truth, to put a different look upon that truth, or to change that truth, the church is in trouble. False teachers were such a big deal in the nation of Israel that they are commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5, to put those false teachers to death so that they might not undermine God's plan for the ages, and particularly for the nation of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 28, 
says that those false prophets have smeared whitewash for the people of Israel, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, listen to this, when the Lord has not spoken. You know what happens? When you put your faith in teachers as opposed to the Word, you know what happens? When you will let the the elite and the intellectuals tell you what the Bible says, you, you know what happens? We begin to put our faith and our trust in things that the Lord has not spoken, but men have. And when we are listening and following men and not the Word through Jesus Christ, the church is in deep trouble. And in many aspects, corners of evangelicalism today, the church is in trouble. So he says, just as false prophets rose among the people in Israel, there will be false teachers among you. They are here now, he says. They will continue to be here. And these false teachers secretly bring in, they smuggle into the church that once was rooted and grounded in that prophetic word that was more important than their emotional experiences. They smuggle in, they secretly bring in what he calls destructive heresies. A heresy is an opinion that is profoundly at odds with what has been accepted over time. They are coming into the church. They are introducing false teachings and destructive heresies. They are rethinking what the church always believed, and because we have given faith to these intellectual elites, we are listening to them and not listening to the Word of God any longer. And that is a gravely dangerous place to be, a destructive place indeed. It is pernicious. These false teachers are causing great harm by their destructive behavior. Next week, we'll look at some of these culturally and ecclesiastical destructive behaviors. You are not identified or known by the color of your skin or ethnicity or your gender. As a child of the King, you are identified as a child of the King. There's no Jew or Greek or male or female or bond or free. We are children of the King. That is the truth of Scripture. That's not what we're hearing in many segments of evangelicalism today. Marriage is between one man and one woman, but that's not what we're hearing. Even in segments of evangelicalism today, there's this belief that somehow we can water down that truth to reach the people. But when you water down the truth and reach the people with destructive heresies, they're beholden to destructive heresies that blind them from their sin and need for Jesus as Savior. Let me tell you how that's worked out culturally in times past as these heresies are, are smuggled in. Back in the fourth century AD, there was a priest by the name of Arius. There was a doctrine of Arianism that he introduced into the church. It was ultimately addressed by the Council of Nicene. But he taught that Jesus Christ wasn't indeed the Son of God. He was a creation of God. He was the first act of creation, and he had a nature that was unlike God the Father. So therefore, Jesus was a finite created being who had some divine attributes, but he wasn't 
the eternal and divine Himself. He wasn't God, in other words. He was created by God. And if you're unfamiliar with Arianism, perhaps you're familiar with this. Much of the theology of Christ is following this Arianist kind of teaching within the cults of the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons. Jesus is a good man, he's a glorious teacher, but don't call him God. So I suggest to you that there's nothing else to call him. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Christ Himself. You see, when you begin to follow teachers, when you begin to follow opinions, when you begin to follow this trend towards the elites and the intellectuals, you cease being able to see the truth for what it really is, and it is perspicuous. It is clear, and nothing can be more clear that Jesus is the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. They will tell us, you're too simple to embrace such a a belief as that. Well, perhaps I'm too smart to embrace any other belief because God said it. It is clear. It is perspicuous. But you can see how these heresies arise, and more often than not, these heresies are around and surrounding the person of Jesus Christ. We will see this in the text. Also, an early Christian heresy was the heresy of Docetism. This was another false view of the humanity of Jesus. Docetism taught that Jesus didn't, didn't have a human body like ours that has real ramifications for the incarnation and the celebration of Christmas. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among them, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To deny the human dimension of Jesus Christ would to undo and undermine the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Tocetism taught that Jesus was divine in some way, and He had a divine body, but He didn't have a body like ours. In fact, some would go as far to say when you saw Jesus in the body, it was just an illusion, just an appearance. It it wasn't real at all. He wasn't the perfect God-man. That has Gnostic and Platonic components to it, and without getting buried in that… Greek dualism or Platonic dualism saw the body and material things as being evil, so Jesus couldn't have a material body. He saw the spirit as being good, and there was this dualism of separating the body and the spirit that led to some moral practices in the Greek culture based on this Platonic dualism that it didn't matter how you behaved in the flesh as long as you believed and the right things on a spiritual plane. That is exactly the Gnosticism that exists in much of evangelicalism today. That is the danger of following men rather than following God, and the the ramifications are huge, as we'll show in a minute. Then, of course, we have the Reformation in church history. Martin Luther nails his 95 thesis to the door on the Wittenberg Castle. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone for the glory of God. Where do you suppose those solas came from? The Word of God. Scripture 
alone. As Peter is addressing these people who are facing these false teachers who brought in these pernicious, destructive heresies, he's saying, watch out for them. They are undermining, look what it says in the text, denying the master who bought them. Now, listen carefully. This is a misunderstood text. We're not going to get into all the ramifications of the text. But here's what Peter is saying. They say that Jesus is the source of their faith. They say that Jesus is the sovereign Lord. They say that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and you come to God through Jesus, yet they teach something radically different, and they deny the sovereign nature of the Savior. What Peter is saying is they can talk all they want about Jesus as Savior, but what they're teaching is false teachings, and there is a grave penalty for twisting the truth upon the nature of the Savior, and there is judgment coming for those false teachers. To say that Jesus bought you and to go and live your life as if He didn't buy you is heresy. It's destructive heresy. To say that Jesus bought you with a price, but you have no allegiance to Him is a destructive heresy. And although people shoot at me all the time for championing the Lordship of Christ, everybody listen for a second. For everyone who claims the name of Jesus as Savior, He is also your Lord and Master. You can't separate it. They were separating it. They were saying, it doesn't matter how we live. As long as we talk about the truth, give lip service to the truth, it doesn't matter how we live. Do you see the connection to what's happening in our world and the connection to what's happening in evangelicalism and why, why Peter's addressing this in the early church? Hey, listen, watch out for these guys. They're giving lip service, but their hearts are far from the truth, he says about them. They're denying the master who bought them, and they're bringing upon themselves swift destruction. What does that mean? They truly think they're right when everything about them is wrong. You cannot be right about the gospel and deny the master, the Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ. To cut out or to change the nature of Jesus is to destroy the gospel. You cannot have it both ways. You're in or you're out. And the truth of the matter is, if we don't get Jesus right, if we don't get our Christology right, we will never get the gospel right. So let's get the gospel right this morning. Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with myself, that where I am, there you may be also, speaking to his disciples. He says, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There are people today who are saying that there are elements of truth of all world religions. We're really all saying the thing, that the same thing, that's anathema, that's not true. For all of the world religions, only Christianity is that religion that champions the lordship and the deity of Jesus Christ. Nobody else does. 
They're not teaching the same thing. It is a false teaching. It is a pernicious lie, and neither is there salvation in any other. Jesus Christ is the way, period. We don't need to discuss that any longer. But boy, do we need to shout that from our pulpits. There's too many people following the lie today. And they're beginning to question the very orthodox things that the church has taught for some 2,000 years, because now we have this elite class that's just smarter than everybody else. Don't you love those people? You probably think I'm one of those people. That's why we start on Sunday morning by saying, take your Bibles, please. Even if I was one of those smart people, and I'm not, do you think my mind is any match for my Master and Savior, Jesus Christ? Thus saith the Lord. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. He is speaking of these false teachers who say that they were bought by a price through Jesus, who deny Him every step of the way. They're evil. Before the Jews who were gathered at Pentecost and beyond in the city of Jerusalem, Peter stands and announces that this same Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. It is the foundation of the gospel. Listen carefully. If you were here this morning believing in anything but Jesus, you're in trouble. It is not Jesus plus good works. It is not Jesus plus righteousness. It's not Jesus plus right doctrine. It's not Jesus plus anything. It is in Christ alone, our hope of glory. To acknowledge your sinfulness, to believe that the penalty is this condemnation that, first, or that John chapter 3 speaks of is to recognize that every single one of us is dead in our trespasses and sin, and a day of judgment is coming. It is swiftly going to come upon us. God sent His only begotten Son into this world to save His people from their sins. He died a death on the cross of Calvary to pay your sins and to pay my sins. And you must believe that He died for your sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried and that He was raised again a third day according to the Scripture. And you must embrace the reality that it's in Christ alone that you have hope and salvation and promise and blessing. Nothing else can replace that. Yet at the same time, you cannot claim to have faith in Christ and go live your life any way you want to live your life. Because if He is your Savior, He is rightly your Lord as well, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And all of us are beholden to Him. Look what He says in the next verse. And many will follow their sensuality, 
Many will follow after their false teachings and this notion of emotionalism. Many will follow after their sensuality, which literally means their immorality and their sexual debaucheries, their reckless, hardened sexual immorality. You see, he's saying they're not of us. They're not of Christ. They're saying you can live sexually any way you want in your body as long as you believe in Jesus and your spirit. And Peter's saying it can't be that, that way. It can't, it can't be that way. You can't separate the two. You can't divide the two. And many were buying into the sensuality of these false teachers who gave them permission to live life on their terms. When, in fact, you come to Jesus, it is a decision not just to be rescued, but to live your life on His terms. And that's what lordship is. None of you are perfect at that. None of us will ever achieve the height of that lordship where every aspect of our life is yielded to Him, at least not until we see Him and become like Him. But it doesn't negate the reality that that's what He's called us to do. You can't do anything you want to do and claim the name of Jesus. You can't. It's a false teaching coming from the false teachers. And Peter's warning us of the implications of that. What are the implications? The truth is blasphemed. The truth is blasphemed. To give permission to people to live their lives on their rules and with their motions and their way, and yet claim the name of Jesus, it's blasphemy. Peter says they're bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, listen carefully. These false teachers will bear the brunt and the blame for their false teaching you'll bear the brunt and the blame for whether or not you follow these false teachers. Just because something's teaching something wrong does not absolve you of your responsibility to get into the book this more sure word of prophecy and say, that's not what the book says. You will answer for following these false teachers and these liars. That's your accountability. They will answer for the deceitfulness of their greed. Look at verse 3, and in their greed… They will exploit you. They'll take advantage of you with false words, with words that, that are undermining of the truth, with words that turn you away from that which will set you free. And Peter says their condemnation, the false teachers, from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. From Genesis chapter 3 through the rest of the Scripture, it is perfectly clear that all who stand in opposition to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and undermine true truth and gospel, there is a coming judgment. Some of us are lamenting the fact that it hasn't happened already. God, do you see what's happening? Do something about this. You think your God sleeps and slumbers? The psalm writer teaches us, you do not have a God who sleeps and slumbers. He knows exactly what's going on. He is paying attention. There is a ledger that He is keeping track of all of these atrocities in, and their condemnation is sealed. It's not idle. They are not going to get away from this. Aren't you happy about that? You're not going to get away. We're listening 
and following and separating what you say is true from how you live your life. You can't change the gospel. You can't dismiss it and do whatever you want to do. God's wrath is not idle. It is accumulating. And their destruction is not asleep. God is not sleeping. He's fully awake and ready. I have to believe He's grabbing the arms of the throne, ready to stand at the sound of a trumpet. And He is going to set the record straight. First Baptist, we have to be aware of what these false teachers are teaching. But just as we sang this morning, Everything that we say and do must be focused on the Savior, the truth of the Word of God, and the gospel that sets men free. It doesn't matter what the experts say, thus saith the Lord. It doesn't matter what the culture says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. It doesn't matter how they threaten us. It doesn't matter what they do to us because their destruction will be swift. It will come upon them. It will overtake them. And that is a done deal waiting to happen. We have a just God who will set the record straight, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and so shall we ever be together with the Lord. Therefore, what does he say? That's where real comfort comes from. That's how we comfort each other. King Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, and He is coming. Are you ready? How do you get ready? Because you have something more sure, the prophetic word. May we never move an inch from the truth that sets us free. Remember, Spurgeon used to say, Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. These false teachers aren't out there speaking blasphemy openly. No, they are subtly mixing in blasphemy with the truth, and it's conceivable. They spin a good tale. These are wordsmiths, and you have to tell the difference. Pastor, I can't tell the difference. Then get into the book because it's the book that will define the differences between them and us. We must be people of the book and discerning. Why? For all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction of these false teachers and their, their teachings, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We are living in perilous times, but the truth never changes. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. We will celebrate that as we remind ourselves this morning to the table of communion, the glorious gift that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Be on guard be on the lookout. Don't be those many who are deceived. May the truth set you free, and may you be free indeed. Protect our hearts. Protect our minds. Give us clarity to speak in the culture. 
boldness to speak against the false teachers, and an unwavering commitment to the truth, the person and the work of our Savior Jesus Christ. And we pray even so, come Lord Jesus. May the glory be yours alone, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.